So, like I said, we're going to be concluding our series, The Silent Night Before Christmas, and this will be part four. And um, we've been talking about, you know, really, really relevant things over the past few weeks. And uh, we've been talking about this this period of history that we often don't know a lot about. It's called the intertestamental period. And uh, for those of you guys who are, might be watching for the first time, what we've been doing uh, for the past few weeks is we've been trying to see how God prepared his people for the coming of Jesus. And so we want to look at this period of history that we don't know a lot about, this intertestamental period, to see what God did and how God prepared his people for the coming of Jesus, right? It's this historical era right before Jesus came. And the hope and prayer for me would be that through this, we too would be able to prepare for Jesus' coming. We'd be able to prepare for a revelation of Christ in our lives, that through this, um, not only this holiday, but just things would be more meaningful and we would be taking steps forward in our faith. So um, what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about the end of the intertestamental period, like how it ended and the things that we need to learn and understand as we talk about what that means for us. The intertestamental period, or as uh, we, we call the nickname, is the 400 years of silence. It technically ended with John the Baptist. It technically ended with John the Baptist because he was the first official prophet since Malachi. And I get that, that um, the, the 400 years of silence is that it, it was silent because God raised up no new prophets. And so it makes sense that when John would come on the scene, he's the first prophet in 400 years that it would mark the end of the intertestamental period or the 400 years of silence. However, as I read the story of Jesus's birth, there is a moment that I feel like that's where actually the silence was broken. And and I get that it's not the same thing and it's not marked as the end of the, um, as the end of the period, but I feel like it's a powerful moment that we got to look into. There's a moment where the silence is broken, and it's not the message from the angel to Mary or the angel to Zechariah, who is John the Baptist's dad, because those are very private. Those are very private moments where, where God is revealed and a message is revealed. But there is a moment where there was a heavenly revelation, and it was public. And, and it wasn't for the whole town. It wasn't for the whole country of Israel. But for a select few, God revealed himself and revealed his plan and broke the silence. And it was undeniable. So I want to read this story to you from Luke chapter 2, starting from verse 8. Um, no slides today. So if you guys want to follow along, grab your phone, grab your Bible, um, flip the pages, swipe to Luke chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 8 through 14. Luke chapter 2, 8 through 14. Since that night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, Do not, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, and you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. And if you are familiar with the Christmas story, and if you're familiar with the Bible and you grew up in church, you've heard this before. You know that... This moment had happened. 
You, you know that there was a moment where these shepherds experienced, experienced this revelation from God. But I want to ask a question about this. Considering that, that this is near the end, or as I'm kind of saying, it is the end of the 400 years of silence. It's, it's this, this huge moment where the glory of heaven is, un, is revealed unlike ever before. After 400 years, my question is this, what made it happen? Like what initiated the end of the 400 years of silence? Why this and why now? You know, what was going on in Israel at the time? What was going on in these shepherds' lives? What was happening? What made this night different than any other night that came before it? What were the people doing? What were the shepherds doing? What was Israel doing? The answer is absolutely nothing. Nothing was different. Nothing had really changed. They had not done anything to initiate the end of the 400 years of silence. In Luke chapter 2, verse 8, as we began the story, the account tells us that that night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. What does this mean? It means that the shepherds were doing what shepherds do. They were, they were just at work. You know, this was just another day. They clocked in and they got to their work and they're, they're doing their job. This is as normal a night as any other night in their adult lives. They're just doing what they had been doing every single night since they became shepherds. Like this is just nothing happened. There was nothing special about this evening. They didn't do anything that convinced God that in this moment, he should now end the 400 years of silence. And that, that idea is beautiful, but it's also concerning. Right? It's beautiful because Israel had really done nothing. And in this moment, it was totally God's decision to end the silence. This was an act of his mercy. He is now, even though they had done nothing to earn it, they had done nothing to, to convince him, he decided out of his, his mercy, out of his grace, out of his sense of timing and what needs to happen to end the 400 years of silence. But it's concerning because that meant that Israel had no control whatsoever when the silence would end. It could have gone longer. They had no control. They could do nothing to change God's mind. They couldn't push God or pressure God to make God do something. It was completely up to God and it was completely his decision. That's really, really important for us to understand as we look at this, this idea of the silent night or the dark night of the soul or the, the season of spirituality when we cannot hear God and we cannot experience God and we don't feel God. And we've been exploring that idea for the past couple of weeks. And when you think about it, this makes so much more sense. Because so much of God's preparation in this time of, of, of spiritual life so much of this is focused at leading us into deeper intimacy with him. It's getting past kind of like level one faith, level one relationship with God, where you feel things and it feels good and you like it and it's exciting. God wants us to move into a deeper place of intimacy with him. And that's why oftentimes he leads us into these kinds of places. But as I kind of reflected on it through, through reading about it and studying about it, but also looking at my own life, I realized that so much of this process of leading to a place of intimacy, it's really about one thing, and it's really about control. 
It's really about releasing or to use a more spiritual word, surrendering control. Like the more we can surrender control to him, the more we can be brought into a place of intimacy in our relationship with him. It's about releasing control over him. It's about releasing control over the relationship and what the relationship is like. It's about releasing control over what God does and what God does not do. If we're honest, so much of our relationship is about us trying to control God and get God to do something that we want. Like we want him to give us blessings and we don't want him to give us challenges or pain. We want him to give us blessings. We want him to give us feelings of blessings. We want him to give us feelings of joy and contentment. We want, to, we want him to give us a certain set of, li- of life circumstances, the ones that we want, the ones we believe we need. So much of our relationship, man, if you think about it, we try to control God so much. And I'm realizing this, that the desire for control is one of the most effective ways to prevent intimacy with God and with other people. It's really hard to have an intimate, deep relationship with someone that you are trying to control or with someone who is trying to control you. The desire for control is one of the most effective ways to to prevent intimacy with God and with other people. So, of course, the silence was not broken when, when Israel acted right, when everyone started acting right. You know, we talked about how one of the big things that changed through this period, we don't know how, but but the big difference we see in Israel that in the Old Testament, they struggle with idol worship. But in the New Testament, in the Gospels, that's not really a a worry. That's not really a a battle anymore. Somehow they overcame it. But, but if you think about it, the, the, this, this period of silence, it didn't end when, when the last idol was destroyed. It, it, it didn't end when the last pagan temple was destroyed. No, the silence was not broken when everyone started doing the right thing. The silence was, wasn't broken because everyone came together and, 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 and held hands and, and said the right prayer and sang the right song or had this like, you know, special ritual moment. And silence was broken because, and only because, God decided to end the silence. God was fully in control. And this is such a powerful spiritual dynamic. The more we can release and surrender control to God, the deeper we can go in our relationship with him. These past few weeks, um, not just like starting from this series, but even before, as we kind of did the, the whole series on Ecclesiastes, the worst sermon ever, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, it's, it's been really cool to see what God had been doing through it. And I've had a number of people talk to me and, 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 and say really encouraging things to me in, in relation to sermon, like, oh, great message. Like that really spoke to me. That was awesome. Really appreciate that. But I've noticed that there's been a, a few people and there's kind of this like repeating trend that people are saying like, something has changed with you. Something has changed with the message. Like we're noticing something different. And like this past couple series, man, it's just been like, you know, oh, and, and it made me think, you know, what am I doing differently? You know, I, I believe a lot in like when you, when, when something's broken, you got to figure out how to fix it. But I also believe that when something's going right, you got to know why it's going right. So you can kind of like continue that or when things go wrong, you know how to fix it. And so I was like spending a lot of time thinking about, you know, what, what, what changed? Like, like, what did I do? Am I using a new shampoo or something? You know, like what, what's different about me 
and the way I'm approaching sermons. And I was like, honestly, nothing has changed. Like, I'm just doing the same things that I've always done, honestly. But there was one thing completely unrelated to sermon writing that I began to think about. And uh, a number of weeks ago, a couple months ago, maybe, um, I decided to make a change in my own spiritual life. And it was, it, was, uh, it, was, it was hard because it's not something that I was used to. And what I had realized as I looked, about my, I looked at my relationship with God, I realized that so much of my relationship with God and the things I do to grow in Him and, and the, the spiritual you know, things that I do to, to grow spiritually, um, a lot of it was about getting God to do something. I was thinking about my life and I noticed that when, when I would go into sermon prep mode, you know, I would make sure, oh, I got, I got to read the Bible. I got to spend time with him. I got to, I got to read the Bible because if I don't read the Bible, I'm not going to be in the right place spiritually. I'm not going to be able to write a good sermon and like everyone's going to know and it's going to be a terrible message. And something just like at one moment just made, I, I think it was the Lord and he was like, this is not okay. You know, the way we're relating to each other, this is not okay. And I realized that I was using quiet times and devotionals and personal spiritual practices and, and, and things like that so that God, I was doing those things so that God would reward me or God would help me with the sermon. And I thought like, that's not, that's not a way, that's not the way a relationship works. You know, it, it doesn't work that way where I'll spend time with you so that you'll do something for me. And so when, when the, the change that I made was I no longer believed, and, I, and I, I had to tell myself this, that God is not going to just bless the sermon just because I did my devotion. And he's not going to ruin the sermon because I didn't spend time with him. And so I began to surrender that. And, and it's been really awesome over the last few months. What has happened was I no longer felt I had to spend time with him. I began to want to spend time with him which is a completely different experience. And I I don't know, and I can't guarantee, I can't say that this was causation, but I have to believe that as I began to be able to release control to him and to have more faith and entrust more into him and remove myself from from the equation, that something has happened that has led me to surrender the messages and, and everything else to him as well. And so I, I, I realized that trying to control God is one of the most effective ways to prevent intimacy with him. Now, for those of you guys who are, have been struggling with this, maybe for a little bit of time, kind of like a season of spiritual dryness, like what I want you guys to know is this, that this is not something that you have any control over. You cannot... You cannot over-spiritualize your way out of this, right? Well, in, in, the, in the situation that we're talking about, this silent night, this period of spiritual dryness, this is God-induced and God-initiated, and it is God who is the one who will decide when it is over. And I know that's rough, and I know that's hard. Maybe you don't want to hear that, but God is the one who will decide when the silence will be broken. So so if you're in that place, I I simply want to offer this prayer to you, a really, really simple, basic prayer that I want you to pray this week and throughout this season that you may be in. 
This is the prayer. Heavenly Father, do not take me out of this. Take me through this. Heavenly Father, do not take me out of this. Take me through this. He is the one who is in control. He is the one that will lead you through it, and he is the one who will lead you out of it when it is time. Over the past few weeks, um, I feel like a lot of people have resonated with these, with these messages. And, and I, I think maybe what it was is it, it gave people language and a picture of what they were going through spiritually. And it helped them to realize that it's not just their laziness or it's not just their them being distracted or having, you know, mis, misordered desires and priorities. And, and, and maybe it is part of it was that or maybe you did struggle with that. But I think, you know, over the past few weeks, we've been learning that this is a thing. Like, this is a real thing that happens to people. And, and for some of you, it has confronted you with the truth about your heart. You know, last week, we talked about being spiritually discontent. And I think that brought a lot of things to the surface for people. That, that be, people began to understand, like, yes, I actually am very spiritually discontent. And I've been like that for a long time. And it's hard, but it's good. You know, we got we to recognize that. Um, what I want to do for the, kind of the rest of the message... I just want to tell you about what do we do, talk about what do we do during those dry seasons. You know, we talked about it in part two. Pastor Jonathan talked about engaging in community and how important that is. And that's absolutely true. But there's two other things that I want to share with you. How do you function or how do you live and how do you try to live a spiritual life during the period of spiritual dryness? And it's really simple. The first is I want you to rest well. I want you to rest well, meaning you can't muscle your way out of this. You can't, don't, don't, don't try to read more like, oh, I was going to read the Bible in one year, but now I'm going to read it in six months. You know, I'm going to read the Bible five times this year. You know, you can't, you can't make yourself, you can't pull yourself out of this. If this is in fact what we're talking about, this is God initiated. Don't try to attend more worship service. Don't try to pray more. Don't try to do more. Now, now, if you're not in this place and you're just in a spiritual dryness and, and maybe there's other reasons you're in that place, maybe you do need to read more. Maybe you do need to spend more time with him. Maybe you do need to attend more worship services and pray more. Maybe. But if you are in this place and this is God that is in control, just rest in it. Do what you do to, to engage spiritually. But know that you can't force your way out of this. Take the pressure off yourself. You are not in control. God is. The second thing I want you to do is I want you to wait patiently. And as I explain this, it may almost seem kind of like like the opposite of what I just said. And and what I want you to do when I say wait patiently, do, do not quit. Do not quit. Do not stop doing the things that help you spiritually. Do not stop doing the things that help to engage your heart and your mind spiritually. And I know that there is going to be moments where those don't feel as meaningful as they used to be. But my encouragement to you, my, my, my ask is don't quit. Now, some of the area, in some areas of your life, you may need to take breaks and you may need to slow down or you may need to make adjustments. Absolutely. But I want you to be careful. Don't confuse managing your responsibilities. Don't confuse slowing down and managing your priorities with quitting on God and quitting on the church. 
You know, oftentimes there are people who say, I just need a break. There's just too much going on in my life and I just need to take a break and I just need to take a rest. And what people often do is they're not taking a break from their responsibilities. They're taking a break from God. And don't confuse the two. Those are two very different things to slow down, to rest, to manage your responsibilities. And it is a completely different thing to quit on God and to quit on church. And here's the way you can know this. And if you've ever gone through this, you'll know what I'm talking about. If when you take a break from your responsibilities, you find that you also no longer spend time with God in the word or in prayer or in worship, you'll know that you confuse the two. So if you're in a period of spiritual dryness, rest well, engage in spiritual activities, But know that you can't force your way out of it. But at the same time, wait patiently for what God is going to do. Invest in your relationship with God. Do the things that help you to to grow your faith and trust in him. Knowing that he will speak when it is time. It's about releasing control over the relationship to him. It's about allowing the relationship that we have with God to be set on God's terms and not ours. Just like the shepherds. Right? There will be a time when the silence is broken. And the shepherds didn't know anything. They didn't do anything. They were just living their lives. And for you, the, the revelation or that moment when the silence is broken may not be as dynamic and in your face as it was for the shepherds. But I want to encourage you, it's going to come. If you stay, if you rest, if you wait, if you lean into that discontent, that, 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 that moment when the silence is broken will come. But how sad would it be? What a tragedy it would be is if that moment came, but you missed it because you weren't listening. That moment came, but you missed it because you quit on God the week before, the month before. Like what if God breaks the silence, but we're not paying attention? And I want to look at chapter 2, verse 15, and look at how the shepherds responded to us. And I think there's a lot of truth in how the shepherds responded. And that's what I want you to do in that moment when you feel like God might be breaking that silence. Let's look at what the the shepherds did. Uh, Luke chapter 2 and 8 to 14, it, it describes this like, you know, amazing event. But in verse 15, it says, when the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And this is really, really simple. When you feel like God is breaking the silence, and it may be in a whisper or maybe in something big like this, when that happens, like the shepherds, I want you to respond immediately. Respond immediately. Don't wait. Don't wait. Don't sit there and think and and, and convince yourself that it wasn't God and it was just you. Respond immediately. And if you read a few verses later, you can see how immediately they actually responded. In verse uh, chapter 2, verse 20, it says, the shepherds at the end of this, when they, after they saw Jesus, says the shepherds went back to their flocks, right? This indicates that when they had that revelation, they left their flocks and they went to Jesus, right? And, and, and that's like, I don't know if that was a wise decision, right? That's their livelihood, right? Like that's, that's, their, that's their business. Like that's how they survive. And they just left them. It just shows how immediately they responded to this moment when the silence was broken. So, so when you have that moment, whether it's through reading the Bible, 
whether it's in, in worship service, it's a sermon or a song or, or just a prayer time, when you feel like God is breaking that sign, even a little bit, I want to encourage you guys to respond immediately, immediately, immediately. But then as you look at the shepherds, they also responded outwardly. They responded immediately, but they responded outwardly, meaning they didn't just have a moment in their hearts and in their minds saying, that was amazing. In that moment, they left. They left their sheep. They left their location. They left where they were. They left the field they were in, and they moved over, and they walked to Bethlehem. And so this is key. This is so, so key because our tendency as church people, and, and I'm, I'm with you on this, our tendency as church people is to hear a message or read a text or read a verse or go to a small group and have a moment where God speaks to us like really clearly, right? He gets to you and, and it stirs you and there's conviction and you're like, oh, wow, right? If you've ever had a, a worship experience and you walked away and you were saying like, wow, I really feel like God was speaking to me directly. Like that, was, that message was for me, right? Like if you had those moments before, the tendency that so much, so many of us have is that that moment, because it can be very emotional and very convicting and it can stir your heart and it feels really meaningful, the tendency is for us to be satisfied just with the response and the reaction we have to the revelation rather than doing anything about it. And so I have to tell you this. This is my, my key phrase for you. And I'm with you on this, and I've struggled with this as well. I want you to understand that conviction, conviction, that moment where we're like, oh, that was for me. God spoke to me. He's challenging me. He wants to change me. He wants me to do something. That moment, that conviction you had in that moment is not a valid response to the silence being broken. It is not a valid response. That moment, as 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 beautiful as it is and as sweet as it is and as painful but like hurt so good kind of way as it is, it is not good enough. That moment when you simply recognize the signs being broken is not good enough. It's important, but the recognition is not enough. For the shepherds, that moment was amazing. Like, I mean, could you imagine if you were there? I would have loved to have been there. But that moment, it wasn't Jesus, was it? That moment when, when heaven was revealed and they saw angels, it was amazing, but it was not Jesus. It was not the Messiah. They had still not seen the Messiah, but I could imagine people just like after that being like, wow, that was amazing. Can you believe that? The Messiah is here. And then they just sat and continued on with their lives. I love the fact that the angels never told them to go. If you read the story, the angels never say go to see him. They just tell him where he is and what to look for. But because of the, the, the power of that moment and the decision of the shepherds, they made a decision to respond immediately and respond outwardly because they knew that that moment, as special as it was, it wasn't Jesus. That moment led them to Jesus. But the moment was not Jesus. So if you've ever had a moment where you feel like the silence was being broken and God was speaking directly to you, I want you guys to understand, yeah, you should enjoy that and realize how special it is that God is reaching out to you. But know that it does not end there, that the moment and that conviction is not enough. You have to respond outwardly. 
In chapter 2, verse 17, this is an underrated part, I think, of the story that we don't really talk about. And this is the third thing that we have to do when you have that moment where you feel like the science is being broken. It says this in verse 17, after seeing him, uh, him being Jesus, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. This is so, so important. When you are living in this like spiritual dryness and then you have a moment where the silence is broken, you respond immediately and you respond outwardly. But so important is this, that you must share your story. You must share the story of how God had reached out to you. And you must share the story of how the silence was finally broken. You have no idea how powerful your story is. Not just for other people, guys, but for you. Sharing your story and speaking it into existence. Not just something that you experience in your life and and around you, but when you tell people about the story, when when it's verbalized, it begins to solidify that moment and that experience in your heart. And so if you've been in this place and you begin to feel like God is breaking the silence, the way to to be present in that and to not miss miss out on it is to respond immediately to respond outwardly, and then to share that story with other people. And I hope you have people that that will love to hear that story. Hopefully you're in a small group. If you're not, let's get you into a small group. I hope you have a spiritual community to share your story of how God broke through the silence and reached you when you needed to be reached. It is a powerful moment. Now, as we close this message and close the series really all together. Um, I wanted to share that C.S. Lewis quote that Pastor Jonathan shared a couple weeks ago. And I know that many of you guys over, over, you guys were already heard it, but to be honest, I was jealous that Pastor Jonathan got to read it and I didn't get to read it because it's so good. It's such a powerful, powerful, uh, a quote from, from C.S. Lewis. And, and so I'm going to, I want to end with this. I'm going to read it one more time. And I don't have it on screen, so just pay attention and just listen. I'm going to read it slowly, very deliberately, so you can hear the words. And maybe you didn't hear it then, so I invite you guys to hear it now. This is from the book called The Screwtape Letters, and it is a satire. And what C.S. Lewis did in this book is he's, ta- he's talking about kind of the Christian journey and the Christian experience from the, the experience and the side of the devil and the demons. And so he has a series of letters from from Screwtape, who is like a senior demon, and he's giving advice to like a a rookie, and his name is Wormwood. And everything is flipped here. And so when he talks about like the enemy, the enemy is God, you know, the creature, that's us. And listen to what he says. He says this, sooner or later, he, that's God, sooner or later, he withdraws, if not in fact, at least from their conscious experience, all those supports and incentives. He leaves the creature to stand up on its own legs, to carry out from the will alone duty which have lost all relish. It is during such trough periods, much more than the peak periods, that it is growing, listen to this, growing into the sort of creature he, God, wants it to be. The prayers offered in this state of dryness are those which please him best. 
he, God, cannot tempt to virtue as we do, read the demons, due to vice. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. This is the conclusion here. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. If you rest, if you wait, if you surrender and you lean into your discontent, one day I promise you, one day I promise you, your silent night will turn into a season of intimacy and worship. And my hope and prayer for you is that you would not miss that moment. If you're in that place Rest well and wait patiently. But as soon as that moment is ended, as soon as you feel like God is breaking the silence, respond immediately. Respond outwardly and then share that story with someone else. You know, on this day, as we conclude this series, I just want you to know God has not abandoned you. No matter what it feels like, He is with you. So we're going to close in prayer. And I want to pray on on behalf of all the people who may be in this season of life. And I'm going to pray that prayer that I just taught you earlier in this message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if there's anyone listening and watching now who is in a state of spiritual dryness, who is in a place where they can't hear you or feel you or experience you, Here's my request, O Lord. Do not take us out of this. Take us through it, God. Take us through the challenges. Help us, Lord, to know that we can trust you and we can have faith in you, that you are beside us, even if we don't feel it. And help us look to that day with faith and with hope that one day the silence will be broken, and we will be as you want us to be. Thank you, God. In your name we pray. Amen.